Hi, this is Mark, and welcome to Nerdology. And my very special guests, yes, we have two guests today, are... Friend of the show, or I should be best friend of the show, I suppose, really, because he's been on so many times. Uh, it's Mr. Eric Stadnick. Hello, Eric. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me back yet again. It's always a pleasure, and alongside me, the long-suffering Mrs. Cockrum, Amy, my wife, has decided she would like to... Uh, talk about this subject so hello amy hello eric's the best friend of the show and i'm the wife of the show yeah it's a a pretty good place to be (laughs) so uh i figured because i it's really it's just an excuse for me to talk to eric really that's the long and short of it i love it doesn't matter about me who who are you again uh and uh I quite often, I'll just get my guests to talk about something that they wouldn't ordinarily get to talk about on the shows that they do. And um, Eric, after a little bit of thought, decided he would like to subject me to a musical, (laughs) which is not really my cup of tea. But, you know, I've been to one or two. I've been dragged along to by the aforementioned long-suffering wife. And... uh, so yeah, um, Eric, would you like to tell the listeners what your choice was and what kind of prompted you to choose this particular musical? Sure. So uh, this evening we'll be discussing uh, the 1986 or 87, depending on when you count from, uh, Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine musical Into the Woods, which was turned into a movie a few years back, you may remember, starring Miss mm-hmm. Meryl Streep, among others. Um, and the reason is... Uh, I had suggested a few other things, actually, including one that you reminded me we'd already done on Nerdology like five or six years ago, uh-huh. which I'd completely forgotten about. Uh, it's um, a long time ago now. And it's because I've never had the chance to talk, quote unquote, publicly about Into the Woods. And it might be, I mean, if I had to pick, you know, only five or six pieces of culture to take with me to like a desert island, it would be one of them. Like it's so, it's so, it's such a huge part of how I think about what I look for in a piece of art, a piece of, you know, a piece of theater or just a piece of music or a piece of storytelling um, that it it sort of, once I thought for a few moments about what I could do that maybe wasn't a book, uh, Mm -hmm. which is always my first instinct with you. um, I thought, oh, Into the Woods, there it is. And being a musical, there are quite often many different versions that people Mm. will be familiar with so were there specific ones that you wanted to cover or had in mind when you came up with the the idea well the the version i think most people who are familiar with the show at least in america now i can't speak for abroad Mm. uh but in america the the original broadway cast uh original broadway production was recorded and was aired on public broadcasting and mm-hmm. was subsequently released on DVD and is, you know, available various methods um, and is mm-hmm. super duper. Like people who know the show, that's what they tend to know best is that original, that original cast. And it's a really, it's a great cast and it's a great production. So it's a good place. Um, there was also a production in 2012 in Regent's okay. Park in London that was also recorded. And so I watched it that way any number of times that did some interesting, made some interesting changes and adjustments. Um, and then there is the, the film version that I mentioned, um, which is kind of Disneyfied, but not as much as people worried because it was done by Disney mm-hmm. um, and um, ended up being not necessarily 
as much of a disappointment as people feared it was going to be, which is mm-hmm. maybe the nicest thing I can say about it. Um, it's not a total disaster, but I think I think the <laughs> damning with faint praise. Yeah, and I think that's about as str- like there are parts of it I like is how I kind of talk and think about that mm-hmm. movie. Um, I'm glad they made a movie of it because they talked about it for about 20 years before they did it. Um, but I would say like the the truest versions of In the Woods are any almost any good stage production is to me more valuable of this show than mm-hmm. some movie version of it would be. Um, so so i watched the sorry you carry on no partly just because of what's it about what it's about like the themes of Mm -hmm. it it's a very theatrical show in some way yeah that's something i wanted to come to because i watched the the broadway version which must be the the one that you're talking about on Mm -hmm. a very popular video sharing website (laughs) uh work that one out if you can sherlock fans um which uh I thought was much better as an experience than watching the movie. So we watched the movie as well. Mm. Mm. Um, And although it's not my kind of particular favourite genre, I think I found the theatrical version more entertaining because of the... I guess it's the way it's written. It's meant Mm. to be performed live and there's that I think there's an extra element of humour that you don't get in the film mm. that comes across yeah. really well in the Broadway version mm. and the way that the audience react to some of the, the sort of punchlines and the, the mm-hmm. comedy within the show. And I just felt that worked so much better than in the film, mm. which, although there are sort of humorous moments, it tends to perhaps take itself a bit more seriously. Mm. Well, I've gatecrashed this conversation because I've been a fan of Sondheim stuff since I was a teenager. And I have to say, Eric has actually succeeded to do something I haven't done because I've hardly ever got Mark to watch a musical. (laughs) Uh, I think we got about halfway through the first song of Sunday in the Park with George one time Mm. and you were out. That's a tough place. That's a tough place to start. That is true. Um, We did visit New York uh, back in 2010. And they were doing the revival of a little night music at that time, and we went to mm. see that. And um, I also saw that production. Oh, oh! Did you see it with um, Angela Lansbury or Elaine Stritch? It was Elaine Stritch who took over, wasn't it? Yes, it was Elaine Stritch who took over for Lansbury, and it was Bernadette Peters who took over for Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah, I saw the second cast with Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch, and it was wonderful. Oh, brilliant! I'm glad I saw Angela Lansbury, but I do envy that a bit because Bernadette Peters is brilliant. And coming mm. back to it, I think she's a big reason why I prefer the Broadway version because she's got such a distinctive voice. She's the person I think of as the witch. Although Meryl yes. Streep was good, I've just got Bernadette Peters in my head and can't replace that. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, you have achieved something I haven't managed to achieve. But Mark has actually watched the Broadway version more recently than I have. I had it on video when I was a teenager, so I watched it quite a bit when I was younger. Now, of course, technology has moved on. I can't play video anymore, so I haven't seen that fade <laughs> for ages. Um, so I haven't seen that for a while, but I do have quite a strong memory of it because I've listened to it and watched it so much. 
the film I watched for the first time last night. Um, I've always been a little bit too scared to watch it because particularly since having my son, I mm. thought I'd get a little bit upset by all the stuff about children in it. So I've avoided it a little bit. Um, I didn't get as upset as I expected to. Um, the 2012 yeah. version, I don't know at all. So I'd be quite interested if we come on to that to know what's different because I didn't know he changed very much. What the, it's interesting, they they didn't change much. They added some things back that had been cut and sort of tweaked mm. things. Um, and they used elements that had been incorporated into the Broadway revival from about 2000 with Vanessa Williams as the witch. Mm. Um, but, and I, and I could just say this here because spoilers, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> but the, the Regent's Park production of 2012, which was then done in Central Park in New York a few years later... Mm. Um, the main, the, the, the main conceit of it that is, um, quite devastating in its way and is quite interesting is the, the show, and this is something the movie lacks altogether. One of the reasons why the movie, I think fundamentally doesn't quite work is the stage production has a narrator who comes out and says, once upon a time, and the music begins. It is, Mm -hmm. you're setting it immediately. And then halfway through the second act, he gets fed to a giant. <laughs> yeah, yes! that I thought was brilliant. That was so meta yeah. and uh, just very funny. Yeah, and it's about the fact that we live our life like we're in stories, except there's no one guaranteeing that our story has a happy ending. It's on us. We, there's no there's no one writing our stories for us. And so it's such a wonderful little thing to do, but it's such a great comedy moment and, and all this. And it really forces you to examine the nature of storytelling and all that good stuff. But what the regent's part, and that role is usually doubled with the mysterious man, the baker's father who's living in the woods and is a ghost or something. Um, In the regent's park production, what they did (laughs) was the narrator was a little boy who Mm. was like playing with his toys in the woods, essentially. And he Mm. starts telling this story using his like action figures and his dolls and things. Um, But they keep that beat the same. So he gets fed to the giant by the characters halfway through the second act, uh, which is quite awful <laughs> when you're yeah. like this, this small, you know, it's like 10 year old boy or so. Um, but then what happens at the end, the turn, the show, and it's like, well, that's kind of interesting. Fine. Whatever. You know, kids tell stories. Great. Mm-hmm. But then the turn they make, the turn they make at the end, and I'm literally holding back tears as I say this, the turn they make at the end is you find out the boy's father that he sort of run away from is the baker. And oh, okay. it's, it's the chi- it's the baker's son, essentially. Oh, it's right. the baker's son telling the story of how it all happened. That's interesting. And it's sort of like, and at the end, the baker comes out, you know, when they're singing, uh, children will listen. Um, the baker comes and kind of collects his son. And it's like, you know, I know you're upset. And they kind of, it's not like, they don't really add much, except they just kind of have the characters be doing different things during the music. And, the baker and his son sort of hug and clearly are mourning the loss of the baker's wife who we know mm-hmm. has died. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really, it sort of makes the entire thing feel much more real or emotionally connected. You know, you have yeah. that moment at the end when the baker's wife says, tell him the story of how it all happened, be father and mother, you'll know what to do. Um, where she's sort of giving the baker the charge of keeping the memory alive. 
and here you see sort of that being played out in front of you and you but you don't know that's what's happening until the end it's quite lovely Mm. Um, i don't love all the decisions they make in that production but that one is something that i really thought was just sheer genius so were there any new songs as well or new music they'd put back in they so they do so, <laughs> so the, the i think the original broadway score is actually the best version but they have tweaked things uh here and there <laughs> they added um i don't know if you're familiar with our little world which is a duet for the witch and rapunzel no um, i haven't heard that yeah it's, she's going up it's essentially it's a song about how uh the witch, like as she's climbing her hair to visit Rapunzel, has the song and it comes a duet about how, you know, the witch is very happy in their little world, but Rapunzel is mm. starting to want to leave. It's sort of like emotions that you already have in the dialogue and in other moments, but it sort of becomes, it's meant to be like kind of a joke, like hair climbing and jokes about hair. Mm. Uh, something we can share, hair is a line from it. Uh, and that was added originally in the broadway revival i think or maybe the first london production and that's kept in this uh they use the lullaby version of last midnight which was brought in for the original broadway revival where instead Mm -hmm. of it's sort of um sort of angry it's this sort of weird lullaby and the lyrics change about how the witch wants to steal the baby and carry off and go off and live somewhere peacefully away from all these people um which again i think is the inferior version of last midnight but it's fine. Um, and the other thing they do is there is a sort of optional trio. <laughs> so in the first act, um, you have the three sort of fairy tale figures. Because the baker and his wife are sort of new inventions for this show yeah. that Lapine created. Um, and so, but in the first act, you have the three fairy tale figures of Jack, Little Red, and Cinderella have their I know now moments. Yeah. Um, you know, Little Red has I know things now. Jack has giants in the sky. And then Cinderella has on the steps of the palace. Hmm. And what this, what they do here uh, in the 2012 production and what other productions have, that I've seen have done is essentially as Cinderella's ending her song, um, Jack pops up and Little Red pops up and they sort of like echo each other about how I know things now I never knew before. And then it's in the belly of the wolf in the land of the giants on the steps of the palace and it sort of like becomes a trio for a brief moment to sort of re-emphasize mm-hmm. it's three people having the same moment of realization again okay. i don't think it's necessary <laughs> yeah i think the I construction of the show of doesn't on its own. i think would you be able to cope if i make you watch a third version oh you could maybe just watch the clips on YouTube to get a sense of how it's done. Thank you, um, Eric. You something like that. Because, you know, That's it very is, diplomatic. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, but it's quite an interesting interpretation. And in the one thing they do that I don't love, and I'll be curious to hear Amy's thoughts on this, especially given when she watched it, um, mm. is it the sort of I knowness of both Jack and Little Red is heavily sexualized. That okay. like the things they've discovered is kind of that you know they want to have sex, <laughs> right. which is subtext, I think. Yeah, but I they think... make it pretty much text. <laughs> okay, I think that's a problem that I have sometimes with the wolf song about Little Red because mm. that mm. has quite a sexual subtext that is quite often made too explicit. I think, 
And I think mm. I felt a little bit like that when I'd first watched Johnny Depp do it. Uh, yes. But I didn't feel quite so much this time. But I am quite strongly of the feeling that Johnny Depp should never be allowed near Sondo again anyway. No, no. <laughs> it's crazy to think that there? he's appeared in two Sondheim yeah, films. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't ridiculous. go there. Because if I get started on Sweeney Todd, we could be here for a while. <laughs> well, maybe you just need to get it off your chest and it could be a cathartic moment for everyone. Uh, he's not a good okay, enough singer. I did think. He's not I a good enough singer. just now. Um... Have you heard, Eric? I've heard that there have been some versions of Into the Woods done in schools mm. where they kind of sanitise it a little bit by stopping at the end of the first act. Yeah, no, it's called Into the Woods Junior is actually what yeah. it's called. And it's it's officially licensed and sold to, to elementary schools or mm. primary schools, grammar schools. And it is... Um, it is it there is no second act which is kind yeah. of the point of the show is the second act I would argue Exactly. Um, and that's why it came to my mind it's a bit like having Sweeney Todd where he's just a really good hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of removes no, no, the whole point. Yeah. But but I would say I I see this is and this is where I sort of struggle because I I do think cuz yeah it cuts all the second act and it actually cuts a significant amount of the more serious stuff in the first act as well. Okay. And it becomes much more just about the sort of fairy tale quest. And I kind of think that's okay for a very young audience. Yeah. Like, I would not, even though this is a show about fairy tales and Jack and the Beanstalk and Literate Riding Hood, I would not want to show the actual whole production of Into the Woods to an eight-year-old. Yeah. Because it's too much. Like, the things that happened in, the things that happened in Act 2 not only are like deeply metafictional and metatextual, which is one of the reasons why I love the show, like it plays with storytelling and all that. It's also just tremendously upsetting. Yeah. Like, and, and watching people try to grapple with, you know, what they're doing and why they did it and how you go on, how you move on from grief and, you know, and how, how awful the deaths are and how pointless. Yeah. Like when the steward kills Jack's mom is just... Yeah. I mean, it's I have just to awful. admit, um, coming into this as a complete noob and not really knowing much about it, I kind of just assumed that when you get to the, you know, everyone's happy, it's everything's tied up nicely in a bow. I thought, oh, that's it. I'm sure this is this runs for a lot longer than this. And then <laughs> it just, uh, it, yeah, it's just, yeah. Is that common with Sondheim? Does he like to pull the rug from under you and and sort of do that kind of thing or is this just specific to this particular play i would say it's a lapine thing to some extent who's who wrote okay. the book uh who wrote the book for you know the the sort of story for uh, for um into the woods he'd also done sunny in the park with george that was their first collaboration which also has a massive shift between act one and act two mm-hmm. um and i think I, I kind of I, and I don't know this for I don't know this for a fact, but given just the way Sondheim has talked about it, I think while they enjoyed creating Act One, what they wanted to get to was Act Two. Mm-hmm. It's like I Act One, yes, yeah. Act One was the thing they did, and it's fun and it's enjoyable, and there's plenty of really good stuff in there that's just top notch Sondheim and and really funny and great. But what they wanted to do was explore what happens next. Um, you know, you have. I think I'm just really shallow. I just like the funny bits. There, and there's nothing wrong with liking the funny bit. There's a reason that I, I, I've taken 
at least five or six people who've never seen Sondheim before and made them go to see Into the Woods, like mm-hmm. either in the theater or at a theatrical production um, as their first Sondheim, because it is when you're watching it, especially in a theater, I would say it's really funny. Mm. Like the jokes are good. You get to do a lot of silly stuff with the cow. Um, <laughs> the witch gets some really great joke lines and stuff like there's some, it's a lot of really fun humor in it. And it's not nearly so self-serious as something like Sunday in the Park with George is, which I love. Mm. But, I mean, it's about... Sunday in the Park with George is about making art. And that's just a hard thing to get some people to care about. Whereas when it is parents and children and how you honor the legacy of your parents, but at the same time recognize that they were terribly flawed human beings and you have to live with their mistakes and you can't fix that, but you also shouldn't be angry because... What else were they supposed to do? Like, it just goes around in circles with these questions in a really interesting way. But it never quite gets so heavy that you kind of forget that you're having a good time. Mm. Um, Or there's moments of excitement and catharsis, like Last Midnight, that even though it comes late in the show, relatively late in the show, it's just so much fun to watch the witch kind of just go off on everybody finally (laughs) and just be (laughs) done with it all. Um, Which is a great moment. So they... It, it's paced very well, but you're right. There is this sort of uh, rug pulling to the point where many productions actually will like warn people uh, at the end of act one, they'll be like, there is a second act. Make sure you come back from intermission. <laughs> I think I've heard of that happening. <laughs> yeah. People will just leave thinking the show is done. Um, and so, you know, productions do all sorts of things to try to like remind people. Uh, like I think the original Broadway has the to be continued from the narrator uh, before the last and happily ever after. Um, And there's various things, but yeah, it's sort of, uh, it's very subtle, the fact that you see this other beanstalk growing in the background. It's like you don't even notice it in many productions that there is now a second beanstalk. Ooh, what does that mean? What have they done? I think I like about Sondheim that he's not the conventional Mm. musical writer his subjects aren't really the conventional kind of romantic narratives. And I think that's why Mm. I like him. When you mentioned the humor, there's quite a lot of black humor in Into the Woods, which I really like. And I think it sounds like that was something you liked a lot too. Yeah. I mean, um, again, coming at this uh, from the Neanderthal side of the (laughs) argument. uh, (laughs) um, I, what, the thing that I struggle with is I can understand when, you know, they they launch into a song because, yeah, that's, you know, it's a musical. But it's when you, there are sort of elements of, you'll have two characters having a conversation and they'll be talking to each other, then they'll start singing it to each other and then they'll start talking again. And that kind of grates me a bit. And then I, another thing is... I can see the technical aspect of it is is quite impressive and the way they've done it, but it's the whole thing of where... And I think this is a musical thing, not just Sondheim, but you'll have various characters kind of singing, interlinking bits of narrative uh, over mm-hmm. the top of each other, and that kind of grates on me a bit. It's not... I don't find that very pleasing, but then, again, I'm... Possibly not the target audience, maybe. Well, maybe things don't sometimes have to be pleasing. Maybe it's 
the message that it's trying to give it's maybe instead of being pleasing it's doing it in a certain way because that fits the plot that fits the character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you see what I, I think mean? it's you know the thing is the, the, a lot of people just don't respond well to musicals and and sometimes it's they've only seen bad ones i will say i will admit that like some people are like, oh, I saw Cats and I hated it. I was like, well, I, Cats is terrible. <laughs> Cats is terrible. Or even, uh, you know, even... Your name that... is so, so on uh, the, the, the same line. I think even people who, it. even, I will say this, even people who love Cats don't try to defend it on an artistic merit, usually. <laughs> it's usually more guilty team pleasures. Song, but, you know, team I'm sure there are people out there. But many of the <laughs> really great famous musicals are just not... Either the book is really weak, like the story is weak and you don't care about the characters, or there's just clunky... Like, it's a very difficult art form, especially mm-hmm. given how pervasive it is among, like, community theater and local theater and local dramatic societies. Like, it's actually really hard to do well. It's like how common mm-hmm. Shakespeare is. But Shakespeare's really hard to do well. Yeah. Um, but we all kind of acknowledge that, whereas we think kind of any idiot can direct a musical in their local church hall. And that's just not true. It's actually quite hard to kind of make bring people along for that that ride where you have mm-hmm. that sort of some people just have this sort of natural why are they singing now reaction. Um and sometimes the only react the, the only good answer is because they're singing now. I think a show like <laughs> Into the Woods is actually very clever, both with the framing device where it's presented already at a level removed from your reality with mm-hmm. the sort of once yeah. upon a time narrative mm-hmm. it's sort of and you kind of give them a lot of you know like in the original broadway production milky cow is just a statue of a cow that on wheels yeah and it's like there's when he no dies attempt as well, uh, when and he dies, dies and he, so just, he I'm, falls I'm over jack now yeah and i can't and it, it's very yeah. silly. Um, yeah, some costumes, some productions use a man in a cow costume as Milky White, which is very funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and and that allows you to sort of sort of take it to a place of extreme unreality, mm-hmm. um, where everything is kind of being done in a in a way that doesn't require you to sort of justify the singing. Um, but that said, fundamentally. You know, the musical genre is a is a art form where music and singing and dancing is used to express things the same way in a really good horror movie, scares and jump scares and creepiness mm-hmm. are used to tell a story. Like, they yeah. should never just be there to be there. Hmm. Um, they should do something. But the same way that not everyone loves what horror movies are trying to do, not mm-hmm. everyone's going to love what musicals are trying to do. And that's okay. <laughs> that, uh, I, I never want to tell people they, they have to love musicals. So does Sondheim often collaborate? So he's the, more, he's the musical element and then somebody else is the sort of the, the no. writer for want of a better word? Or does he, he does everything? Well, he d- so he does the music and he writes the lyrics to the songs, uh, but mm-hmm. he never writes the sort of story to a show. So his normal right. process for most of his career starting in like 1966 onward um is to work with someone who's sort of essentially going to write a play mm-hmm. and, and along with and then sondheim will work with him and they'll kind of work very closely together actually to sort of structure the play in such a way that the musical numbers will rise out of it but sondheim will write both the music and the lyrics for all of the songs in the show um and he's so there very... a pressure that if you get a, a winning combination that you want to 
keep them together or is mm. he more of a risk taker and wants to work with different people to to explore he's... different possibilities i would say he's both actually it's funny <laughs> right his longest his long term longest long term collaboration was actually with a director uh director slash producer named hal <laughs> prince uh from like 19 they actually worked together on west side story in the 50s and then their last show together was in 1980 um and hal prince kind of directed all of his things whereas the sort of book writers people who wrote the play portion of the musical he hopped around and so um, he did two with one guy, but they were like a decade apart from each other. He did a couple mm-hmm. with a couple others. Uh, Lapine, who did In the Woods, they actually did three in a row together, which is kind of unheard of for Sondheim. Mm-hmm. They did Sun in the Park with George in the early to mid 80s, uh, Into the Woods. And then after this, they did Passion together, which is a very different kind of show. Um and Lapine is still clearly much, very much clearly a good friend of Sondheim's and like works with him on various things. But I think Sondheim's always looking for somebody else. And so after Lapine, he went and worked with somebody else to do another show. And then he worked with somebody else to do another. Like he, I think he feeds off the sort of interests and the expertise and the imagination of other people. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you had asked Stephen Sondheim in 1982, you know, a few years before Into the Woods started coming to life. So you're going to do a show about fairy tales. I think he would have laughed in your face. Hmm. Uh, it's not, it's, he, his his shows had before then been quite dark usually and, and about sad, angry people in cities and, and various things like that. Um, but he, um, I think he sees something interesting whenever a clever script or a clever play is given to him i think he sees oh this could be something um and he likes then working with that person like he would never take a play by a dead author for example and try to adapt it he would never do that even though he's written screenplays he's written movies that gotten made um he knows how to like structure stories but he needs that collaborator i think um and so lapine here is bringing this deep interest in fairy tales and you know fairy tale psychology and sort of the sense of humor i would say is very much james lapine because it's a different sense of humor than what sondheim had in his other shows mm-hmm. in some of the dialogues and things um but so would sondheim, he, yeah would he have written any sort of straight shows as opposed you know just straight mm-hmm. out drama or is he is he very much musicals only He's he's actually trained as a composer. That is his that is his like background. Um, mm-hmm. But he also uh, his first job was actually writing for a TV series in the nineteen fifties. Like his first professional job, he was like a TV scriptwriter in the nineteen fifties. Okay. Um, and so he knows how to structure it. He just doesn't find it that interesting. I don't think mm-hmm. honestly. And I think so he has he... done a couple of plays. He's very into puzzles and mysteries. Mm-hmm and yeah tricks and i think he did a play called getting away with murder yes he did and i forgot about that there's... have you ever seen the last of sheila i have seen the last of sheila yes why don't you tell us about the last of sheila i mean that's quite an interesting little i haven't note. seen it for a few years but it was a film he did with i think anthony perkins was that right yes norman bates yes. himself mm. and it was a, a mystery film that they did together and I remember it being actually really good. I enjoyed it, but I haven't seen it for a few years because I think it's probably quite hold to, quite quite hard to get hold of. 
Yeah, it was mm-hmm. sort of an independent production in the late 70s. But they kind of, mm-hmm. I think but just because Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim were sort of well-known, they actually got a very sort of very 70s well-known cast. Like Raquel Welch is in it and James Mason yeah. is in it. And a variety of other like people are like, oh, them, who were like popular in the 70s. And it's this murder mystery, essentially, where everything is kind of centered around puzzles and games and like scavenger hunts and like solving riddles. It's actually quite, which is very Stephen Sondheim. He's like a puzzle obsessive mm-hmm. um, and he, he loves that. Um, and I think he, and so, yeah, he did this. And it's a really weird one-off kind of movie. It's like, if you're not sure what to expect going in, I think you're probably very sort of thrown by it. Um, but it's it's one of those where if you can sort of work your way through the puzzle of what's being done, like in terms of the murder, you can actually reach the conclusion. It's just really hard to do that because <laughs> the puzzle maker is so good. Um, we'll have to see if we can get yeah. hold of it. So it's a bit of an oddity. You might find it quite interesting. Hmm. It might be another one of these things that is a bit obscure and may turn up on another video sharing website. Mm, it very well might. It very well might. Yeah. I remember when I watched it, I think I had to get an actual physical DVD from Netflix back when they did that. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it, it is it is around. Like, it was released on DVD mm. and stuff, so it, it's it's out there somewhere. Um, and this was sort of... He did it during a period where he'd sort of... Uh, Sondheim had had this sort of 10-year run from 1970 to 1980 where he had done five or six musicals, most of which won the Tony for Best Musical, all of which got, like, some amount of critical praise, actually significant critical praise, usually, um, even though they often didn't make money. He was sort of tremendously well-regarded, tremendously popular and loved, but he wasn't, like, financially successful. Like, he does fine for That's got to be really fine. frustrating. <laughs> it, it, I think it is, but at the same time, I think he's kind of decided he doesn't care. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, but, when you the, said, is he a risk taker? Yes. He chooses very unconventional, very diverse subjects. Mm-hmm. So there was Pacific Overtures that mm-hmm. was about Japan. Yes. You've got a musical about a demon barber. Mm-hmm. You've got... Assassins? Assassins, yeah. Hey, check me yeah. out. Yeah. You've got... Um, I mean, oh, Sunny in the Park with George, which is about a painter. Um, What's the one that's backwards? Merrily we roll along. Merrily we roll along. Yeah. Merrily, Merrily we roll, roll along, along runs backwards, so mm-hmm. you see the characters later in life, and it works backwards, so you see how they got where they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that on stage. That's not one I know very well. Was it that one that only lasted about like eight performances or something? Yes, that was the show that he and Hal Prince, uh, and it was written by George Firth, or based on another play, but written by George Firth, who had written Company with him which was like their first big hit. Again, had no plot, no story. Like very much a classic of theater now, but at the time was sort of, what is this? Uh, Mm Because there is no narrative to company at all. Anyway, in 1980, they do Merrily Roll Along. um, And there are just some massive problems with the production because it's a really difficult piece actually to put on. It sounds great, but the, as Amy described it, it starts in the then present. So it starts around 1980 and goes back to the late 50s. So you have people portraying 25 years in someone's life. Um, and I, I think the fundamental quote-unquote mistake, if there was one, of the original Broadway production of Merrily Roll Along is that 
they cast people who were young so that mm -hmm. you watch them and they ended up playing the right age at the end of the show. But at the yeah. beginning, you had like literally 19 year olds with like gray powdered wigs and like, you know, fat <laughs> suits on talking about being middle aged. And I think that's just not going to fly on Broadway. Mm. You know, that might work at your local high school where people, everyone, everyone is being played by 19 year old. But I, I just don't think it's going to work. Uh, later revivals, what they've done is they've gotten people who are kind of in the middle. And then it can okay. age them up a bit and then age them down a bit. And that works much better, I think. Um, but the score from earlier Rolling is fantastic. But <clears throat> so the show closed after a very difficult tryout period. And then it finally opened. Then like a week later, it, it closed. And Sondheim felt personally burned by mm. this. He, he tells a story about how he essentially heard people leaving a, a, sh a performance of Merrily Rolling. And I forget the exact quote, but saying something along the lines of finally he has like a total failure, like as if as if in his mind and who knows if this is true, people were just waiting for him to screw up. You know, for people were mm -hmm. waiting for him to do a show that not even the critics could save. Hmm. And so Merrily Rolong had that and he's very sensitive about it still, which is interesting because, uh, I mean, he has more money than God and a million Tonys and a Pulitzer and everything else he could ever <laughs> want. Um, and then he left theater and he did this movie and he did plays, uh, but he kind of didn't do a musical for about five years mm -hmm. and which was the longest stretch he had had since he started working in the early, in the mid fifties. Um, and then he met James Lapine and they sort of together came up with the idea of signing the park with George. And then after that, they kind of turned out a few more, including into the woods. Um, but yeah, he's he, he's a sometimes a really weird guy. I mean, he's fascinating, <laughs> um, but yeah, he's like when you see him in interviews, which I've watched many interviews of with Stephen Sondheim, he'll not only tell like the same story the way that the joke is always that Nick Courtney would tell the same story about the eye patch, <laughs> um, but he'll tell the same stories like this one about you know leaving a merrily roll along and hearing people say this thing. He'll tell it with, like, the same hand gestures and, like, facial expressions. Hmm. And, like, it almost it's feels almost like... like performance. Yes, it almost feels like every moment of his life is somehow being very heavily controlled. I don't know. Um, it's it's interesting. Like, he'll use the same words in the same order to tell the same stories. It's very... It's very interesting. And he's... Um, Notoriously, he's very closed off saying about, you know, um, none of my shows are autobiographical. They're not about me. The songs aren't about me. They're about the characters. You know, I'm nowhere in my shows. Um, uh, he, yeah, he, I don't, he's, a, he's, a, he's a weird guy. He's a, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I love him. And I think he's like one of the true living giants of like modern art. But he's, <laughs> he's, he's difficult to really have a sense of like who he is. Like what he does with his time. I may um, have misremembered, but I think I remember Amy saying once that um, there was a show that he got obsessive about and in a very George Lucas way wanted to keep going back and tinkering with oh, it. Oh, I think I know what you're thinking of. Um, I can only remember one iteration of it, but I think I was talking about Wise Guys, which is this idea about, was it the Misner Brothers? Yeah, the Meisner that brothers. He keeps yeah, coming back to and coming back to, and he seems to have been doing different versions of that for ages. Yeah, 
yeah, no, there's three different names for that show. Uh, <laughs> so he so after the end of the woods, uh, and I forget whether assassins is before or after passion, but he does passions and assassin, a, pa- a passion and assassins. <laughs> um, and this at this point it's sort of like the mid to late nineties. He's already like a living legend. Like he doesn't need to do anything anymore, but he still wants to work. And he works on the show, this idea of, with the Meisner brothers, these two sort of, like, as I think he puts it sort of, like, low-level figures in American history. Who are sort of, like, one's kind of, like, a a fast-talking con man, and one's kind of, like, an architect, designer. Um, And their sort of relationship and their sort of role in history. And it's sort of set in, like, the sort of latter half of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. It's actually a bit vague at times. Um, and he does a version of it that, uh, never makes it to Broadway that goes to like a, an off Broadway theater in New York. And that doesn't quite work. He revises it and then that gets staged again and he revises it again. So I think that first it was wise guys, then it became bounce. And now mm. the official name of the show is road show. Okay. I think I might have heard Wise Guys and Bounce, but I haven't heard the third iteration, so I don't think I've heard... What was it? Roadshow. Roadshow, yeah. Mm. And it's... um, Roadshow, I actually saw a production of uh, the European premiere of Roadshow at the uh, Mirnier Chocolate Factory in London, Mm. which is a great Sondheim theatre. And they did a really nice version of the show. It is definitely lesser Sondheim. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are some really great songs in it. And one thing that's interesting is in the um, uh, one of the songs, like the the only song that if you know anything from that whole tortured process of creating a show, um, there's a song called The Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a nice little love song, love duet. And it started in either Wise Guys or Bounce as one of the brothers singing to his girlfriend. And then, and it's kind of sardonic in that version. Um, and then he retooled it when they wrote the show, and it became about the other brother and his boyfriend. It's actually a gay love story, which is something Sondheim had never done before, even though he is gay. Um, and and it feels much more natural in that setting. And it feels it's almost like he was working on the wrong show somehow. Like the show. Like, like the script wasn't there, the story wasn't there, but he wanted to make it happen so bad. He kind of kept trying to make it happen, even though I don't think it was until Roadshow, the, like the version of it they call Roadshow now, that sort of, oh, this is the story we were trying to tell all along. Right. Like, this is the one he feels something about. Um, but as it is, it's still very, it's kind of clunky still at times. It's not... Um, it's very episodic. It's very disjointed. It's hard to know who the main characters are. Like the production I saw was very good, but I still came away thinking, and why is this a musical? Why do I care about these two at mm. all? Um, which I is, think that's maybe mm. why I didn't get around to listening to the third iteration. I think that that whole story hadn't really grabbed me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is he writing anything else at the moment? He is, supposedly. Um, <laughs> I mean, he is now almost 90 um Mm. uh i mean he has a theater on broadway named after him uh he's gotten every sort of prize you could possibly imagine in his career that someone i mean he's won an oscar he's you know multiple grammys tony's all nine yards um but he you know he likes working i think and so he has been working for a long time now on 
and it's this details are kind of thin um but a musical and i'm not sure if it's based on or inspired by or about uh the films of louis brunel who did uh and shan andalou uh the sort of famous weird experimental film where a woman's eye gets cut open with a razor blade like sort of he's a very surrealist uh filmmaker uh, he did other things as well. I think Pixies wrote a song about that called Debaser. Hmm. <laughs> Look that yeah. up, folks. It's a slightly different uh, genre from Sondheim, but anyway. Slightly, slightly, different, <laughs> slightly different, yeah. But he's <laughs> he's been working on this sort of Brunel musical, uh, but they've been in workshops. They, and like, he's written, okay. last I heard, eight songs, uh, which is, you know, getting there. Uh, hmm. He There's a cast that's been singing them. Uh, Matthew Morrison, who was on Glee, oh, yeah. is apparently the male lead or one of them. Who knows, like where it is right now. But hmm. there, he's been really, he has been working on it. Whether he still, you know, has enough energy and creative juices left to kind of get it done, or is uncertain. Uh, but he's not ready to sort of just drift off in retirement just yet. Hmm. Um, but, but I would say, and you know. Uh, opinions vary about when sort of golden age Sondheim ends. I think yeah. some people place the ending with assassins. Um, I personally place it within the woods. I think it's his last masterpiece. I think the shows after it have a lot of merit, but I think they all kind of have fundamental issues to one extent or another that sort of make them lesser Sondheim, which is still, you know, a minus better than levels. most, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, but into the woods is, for me, like literally, I've I've lived with this, you know, musical as a sort of serious part of my life for got a decade now, at least, if not longer. Amy, longer, I think, because you came to it sooner than I did. It never fails to be surprising. It never fails to sort of be interesting. Uh, the music is tremendously tuneful, which is nice, but not in the sort of annoying way. Although maybe Mark mm. would disagree with the main into the witch theme. <laughs> yeah. So what was I, uh, your feeling coming away with the into the woods to get the money into the woods? How did you feel about that? Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's an earworm. I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> I did have that uh, for most of the day wandering around uh, with that going on. But so that, you know, it obviously works on some level. Um, mm-hmm. I know I'm surprised by how much I, <clears throat> I did enjoy that. I think I really preferred the stage version. I didn't, take to the movie i suppose we ought to discuss the movie a little bit because we haven't really touched mm. on that too much but i just felt the humor was far better in the the stage version i you know nothing i didn't think there was anything wrong with the cast as such in the the movie version it just uh didn't really move me in the same way that the the stage version no. managed to and actually. actually maybe that's why i cried less than i expected to Maybe if I'd rewatched the Broadway version instead of watched the film, it might have been different. Mm. I suppose you've got that emotional attachment to it as well, having known yeah. it for so long as well. Yeah. yeah. And Bernadette Peters is my idea of the witch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bernadette I mean, Meryl she's... Streep was. She's phenomenal. The Into the Woods is, you know, it's a 10-person cast, roughly 10-person main cast. Mm. And you can do interesting doubling that's sort of meant to be doubled, actually, the way it's done. Uh, to sort of bring out uh, relationships in in the story and between the characters, 
but the um like you need a good witch and you need a good baker's wife yeah everything else can kind of get by on okay Hmm. um and i think for a stage version and i think actually the movie thought the same thing and i think they think we need to get a good witch and a good baker's wife and they did emily blunt is the baker's wife in the film i think she's Hmm. quite good I think Meryl Streep is quite good as the witch, although I think some of the choices they make for how to use her not always great. Um, mm. They don't let her be funny enough, for example. The yeah. witch is one of the funnier characters because she just doesn't care. Um, although the the thing, the moments that's now a gif of her appearing in the tree and shouting down, "Who cares?" at the baker and his wife. <laughs> is a good um, that that's great um, and very witchy. Um, but they make all sorts of weird other decisions, like having Little Red and Jack be actual children, I think, is yeah. not great. Um, losing, cutting almost all of the actual reprises of the Into the Woods doesn't mm. work, <laughs> in my opinion. Mm. Um, uh, losing the sort of, um, the parade of uh, cliches, or whatever you want to call it, where they all come up with their aphorisms. I love those. I think they add such a lovely uh, touch of sort of the folkloriness of the story, like where you know Jack's mother comes out and says, "The slotted spoon doesn't hold much soup." I'm like, oh, I just I'd lo- forgotten about that bit. Yeah, yeah. All, all those bits where they come out at the first midnight and the second midnight, and then to prepare for the last midnight. Um, it's just so great that the show is fundamentally about the things we pass down to children. It's not just our actions, but our stories and even these stupid little expressions and sayings, you know, when going to hide, know how to get there and how Mm -hmm. to get back and eat first. Like, I just love all of those things. And the movie cuts them all to make it sort of more quote unquote realistic, Mm -hmm. but it's into the woods. It's a fantasia on fairy tale themes. This is not the time for realism. Mm -hmm. I would argue. It's... I think the small thing that I missed most was the reprise of Agony. Mm, yes. Because I find that quite funny. Because you, do you remember that from the Broadway version? Yeah. The Where they have a princes, reprise yeah. and one of the princes has moved on to lusting about Snow White and the mm. other one's then chasing after Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. And I miss that because what I love most about Sondheim is the humour. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right, it doesn't bring that out as much as it should do. Yeah. No, because I mean, like the it's possibly the best laugh in the show is dwarfs are very upsetting. <laughs> like that, it, that kills. Like every performance I've ever seen, and I've seen, you know, maybe half a dozen or more stage productions, um, several of them multiple times. Dwarfs are very upsetting in the middle of a song. Dwarfs are very upsetting. I mean, that is just funny, <laughs> and um. And cutting that entire reprise of agony, which not only sort of loses all those jokes, which is necessary in the second act, because, I mean, it comes early in the second act, but you need the humor in the second act where you can get it. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that we don't get the sort of deeper understanding of the prince's character. Like, we just hear reports that he's being unfaithful and things. And then we have the scene with Cinderella where where they say, you know, I'll always love the girl who ran and I'll always live the faraway prince, which, whoa, that's some serious, you know, psychological pain right there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when Cinderella's accusing him of being unfaithful, 
we've already heard a song <clears throat> where we know that that's who he is. As he says, he was raised to be charming, not sincere. <clears throat> um, and he was raised to always be pursuing, not to be a stable husband. It's who he is. He can't, he can't help himself in some ways and doesn't <clears throat> want to really. Um, and so cutting that reprise of agony makes the sort of reveal of his character being, you know, sort of caddish makes it less meaningful maybe, or makes it hit less hard. It sort of feels a bit more like a random turn as opposed to sort of the reprise of agony makes you know that. Yeah. You can really see it coming more, can't you? Yeah. And it's the, the reprise of agony is about the fact that him and his brother, the two princes, what they love is being in love. And what they love is suffering for some woman. And they're going to leave Snow White and Sleeping Beauty as soon as they left it's the pursuit, Rapunzel it? and Cinderella. And they're going to leave, you know, they're going to they're gonna be the princes in every damn fairy tale because they cannot mm. keep it in their pants. They always want to move <laughs> on to the next. Uh, and it's just who they are. They're terrible. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned lesser son time. And Amy's kind of talked about why she loves him so much. What do you think sets him apart from some of the other notable names in in musical theatre? And it, rather than the lesser, what what do you pick out as your? I mean, obviously, Into the Woods is probably your favourite, but mm. are there others that you would urge people to seek out if they found they enjoyed this one? I mean, I would say if if you're if you're coming to Sondheim and you only know into the woods, there's, I mean, my God, what wonders await you. Um, mm. But it's never been my favorite, but, and it probably never will, but Sweeney Todd is an incredible masterpiece of dramatic storytelling tied to music, tied to poetic lyrics. It is, I mean, all in the service of a story about a murderous barber and the woman who bakes the people into pies. Like when you have an entire, several entire songs about cannibalism, mm. uh, that I mean that that's a, it's an impressive achievement, um, and and it's arguably I think Sweeney Todd, for whatever reason, is weirdly one that people who don't like musicals respond best to. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I think just because it's sort of it's very serious, but it's not self serious. Like it's very dark and gritty. And people like that, and they like like the idea that musicals can be kind of scary and kind of dark and twisted, and mm. and uh, so that um, I Amy earlier mentioned Pacific Overtures, which is not one that people think about often because it's sort of weird and and tricky, and it's it's not only about Japan and J- Japanese opening to the West, but it actually like is influenced by Japanese music and Japanese musical styles which means it's kind of off-putting to Western ears at times. Um, mm. But I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's just incredible. I think it's just incredible. And then, you know, but like I could go on about any of them really. Like, you um, haven't mentioned the frogs, which I thought would be, mm. you know, one of your, the all-time <laughs> classics. Yeah. I probably went wrong trying to get you to listen to the frogs. Yeah. No. I don't know what came over you, but yeah, she made mm. me listen to, well, I don't know. I really can't explain. It just it didn't sound musical at all. It just sounded like a bunch of people making ribbit noises. I like the frogs. <laughs> Which is the, yeah, it's fine. The you frogs, can enjoy that. Yeah. The frogs is an interesting thing. The frogs was meant to be 
and Sondheim has been very public about this. He he, Son, the Frogs was meant to be like a lark. It was meant to be done for fun. Mm. Essentially, he in the seventies he was asked by a drama professor or something. I think Yale. Uh, to essentially write some songs for a little, like, review the students were doing. Like, nothing serious at all. And, mm-hmm. like, the the academic, you know, drum professor kind of, like, it went to his head and he, like, invited the Boston, like, theater. Like, he got very sort of hot mm-hmm. on this idea that Stephen Sondheim was writing, you know, whatever. And Sondheim was really turned off by that. The fact that, like, I'm coming to do this kind of for fun. Like, as a favor. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not getting mm-hmm. paid for this. This isn't my show. I'm just coming and doing some you're doing a revival of a weird Aristophanes play, like, fine, whatever. I'll write you some songs. Um, and he kind of hates everything about the experience. Um, right. I didn't know that. I'm with him on that one. <laughs> yeah. And and what's interesting is he um, he kind of, I mean, not completely, but he it's one of the few times he's ever recycled himself. Um, mm. he had, his first Broadway show that was, the, he wrote both words and music, was a, a farce called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is very well known and widely loved, and has a big <laughs> opening number called Comedy Tonight. Something appealing, something appalling. Anyway. Even and, I know but, that one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's very well known, and it's, it's kind of parodied and referenced and spoofed. And he... But that was the third opening number he had written for that show. The first two had not... Neither had worked for various reasons. and But the first one had this very sort of gods of the theater, smile on us, very sort of big self-important sounding like theatrical thing that he ended up using for the frogs so it's only a few times he's ever been like oh i'll use this mm-hmm. like he clearly wasn't trying with the frogs mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so the fact that it got like an actual broadway production in the 90s with nathan lane and or i guess early 2000s maybe somewhere in there and had you know a cast recording i think is probably shocked no one more than stephen sondheim mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you, Eric. Yes. You've probably gathered by now that Mark is very musical adverse. <laughs> if I'm going to try to convert him to Sondheim, where should I go next? What would you think's most accessible to move on to from Into the Woods? Uh, I mean, it really depends on what on what sort of you're looking for. Um, in the sense that I think, um, I think for a lot of people. I think a lot of people into the woods is a good entry point because it has these sort of recognizable stories and the fairy tale elements and it's very very funny and things like that. I think for others it is Sweeney Todd because it has this sort of, um, for lack of a better term, it has a very masculine energy. Sweeney Todd, yeah, like in a way that people often don't think of musicals having. Um, mm. Like people who think of musicals as like a bunch of chorus boys and girls dancing and doing high kicks. Like Sweeney Todd is like literally the exact mm. opposite of that. And so I think for some people, and I, I don't, I don't want to encourage people to think that way, but if that is how you think Sweeney Todd would sort of disavow you of that. Um, I think maybe I like Sweeney Todd more than you do because I'd say it's one of my favorites. I it, think I like the power of it. Yeah. And if I go to a production of Sweeney Todd, and I think I've seen about three now, if the power of that opening number doesn't mm-hmm. make me feel so claustrophobic that I want to leave. <laughs> They're not doing it right. Yeah. You know, it is, it's, uh, I've only seen it live once, but it was, I mean, and it was like, you know, local theater, like barely, barely getting paid. Um, mm. But it was tremendously powerful. I mean, yeah. like incredibly powerful, even sort of when done poorly. 
Um, but I think just because the themes of that show are things that don't resonate with me as much. Sweeney yeah. is about things like revenge. It's about uh, it's about maleness. It's about patriarchy and being a husband and being a son and being a father. Like it's very sort of it's very heteronormative to use a modern term. Um, mm. All those sorts of things in a way that it just doesn't. I mean, I I I respect it tremendously and I do love it. There are parts of it I just adore, but there's a lot of it that just. For whatever reason, it's always just a little bit further removed from me than it is for other people. Um, yeah. Like, it's, it never quite gets all the way through. Um, whereas the one that sort of gets through to me much harder, I think, than it does for other people is Follies, which is a show he did mm-hmm. in 1971 about a bunch of middle-aged people, uh, all of whom hate their lives. <laughs> it's, I know the it's... music, but I've never seen it on stage. It's a weird show to see on stage because it the premise of it is that these women who were like in a sort of Ziegfeld Follies sort of, you know, girls in cute skirts doing silly songs kind of Broadway production in the 1970s go back for a reunion um, as the theater they performed in is being torn down. So the stage is essentially the stage of the theater and it's sort of all rack and ruin. And the the conceit is that as these party guests, these women and the men they eventually married sort of talk and mingle, the ghosts of the women they were in like the complete crazy headdresses and outfits kind of float around. So you have like the sort of, for every woman on stage, there's like a younger version of her like Mm. in the background sort of hovering. Uh, And that's kind of, and it's a weird, it's a weird thing to see on stage if you're not expecting it. Because they just kind of start floating out at a certain point. And you're like, what is going on? And you realize, like, oh, it's their ghosts, essentially. It's like, it's the beauty they were. It's the talent they had that they no longer have. It's, like, literally about being haunted by your past. Um, and for whatever reason, that just kills me in a way that other people mm. find it very sort of like, well, that's interesting and all. But, um, but yeah. And then at the end of Follies, they all kind of have what Sondheim calls a collective nervous breakdown which I think is quite mm. interesting. Um, and it kind of goes in this weird fantasy sequence. Um, but if you're someone who's like really, I don't know, someone who's kind of feels very not into it, I think maybe company. Just That's because... what I've been thinking of as well. Yeah. Why do you think that, Amy? Because I'm curious if we have the same reasoning. Um, I think partly it's quite a contemporary setting. So mm-hmm. it's possibly something, the kind of relationship thing is people, something that people can all relate to. But I think mainly because I think Mark responds to the humour and into the woods, and I think a lot of companies funny. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think it's... If I'll people's... be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think if people's objection to musicals is the sort of intermingling of... of singing with dialogue and sort of performing company doesn't have that because the way it's constructed the songs essentially are clearly designed to be commentary on the scene either the scene Mm -hmm. in the middle of the scene or the scene kind of interspersed like the characters in the scene never just suddenly burst into song there's one scene that's just Mm -hmm. a song like there's no talking it's just a song but otherwise it's you see something happening and then other characters not in that scene who weren't doing anything 
thing about what you just saw. That's mm-hmm. kind of the vague feeling of company, which means that hurdle of sort of why are they singing is a bit lower. It's a bit sort of more mm-hmm. like you can frame it as like it's a fantasy sequence or like the way you would mm-hmm. have a, a chorus in a Greek tragedy where they come out and say something. Um, it's that much more feeling. Um, and the sort of like written scenes themselves, the actual scenes are quite good. I don't think all of them work as well as they did in 1970. Uh, but many of them are quite good, and there's a lot of good, good uh, jokes. And uh, the the songs though are songs are killer. I mean, the songs are incredible mm. in Company. So, you know, there's company. a really good version, which was a London cast recording quite a few years ago. You probably know it, um, <laughs> with Adrian Lester. Mm, yes. And Rebecca Front, who you like, mm. so maybe that would be a good way in. Yeah, I like them both. Hmm. Yeah. And it yeah. has been levelled at me that for someone who enjoys a TV programme about a man who travels around the universe in a <laughs> telephone box, uh, not being able to uh, cope with people bursting into song is perhaps a bit of a problem. But then hmm. I would possibly level at my lovely wife that the same could be said for someone who checks out of Game of Thrones as soon as the dragons turn up. <laughs> yeah, we've all got our own things that make us opt out. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is dragons, yours is people randomly singing. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we all have our things. We all have our things. Um, well, maybe, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll have a look at company then and see, you know, if I can tolerate it. I'd be curious. Maybe the Eric other... can come yeah. back on to talk about company in a few months' time. <laughs> that um, would be. Oh, there's a brilliant documentary about the recording of the Broadway cast mm. album as well. I'll have to try and find that for you. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's it's literally just watching people record a cast album. It's actually quite interesting, um, mm-hmm. and very very seventies. Um, hmm. But yeah, no, it's it's um, the other alternative, and this is something that just occurred to me now is maybe instead of trying to do like a show, watch one of the Sondheim reviews that's just song after song after song. Okay. Because many of the songs divorced from the show are still great to listen to and still can be funny and interesting and moving. And so maybe sort of find your way in through the songs instead of trying to find your way in through the shows, per se. Maybe. Well, Side by Side was my way in when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's one called Putting It Together, and there was one Sondheim yeah. on Sondheim that was just on Broadway about five or six years ago. Uh, there's any number of sort of Sondheim reviews that have dvd or cd releases and things so hmm. well i think we can all agree that it wasn't a complete waste of everyone's time for me to to sit down and watch it i think i <laughs> certainly took something from it and hopefully it was just nice for you guys to just sit back and watch a show that you seem to both quite enjoy i mean i never had an excuse to watch it in the woods <laughs> so we're going to go for a short commercial break and when we come back i will be asking my guests Uh, for their recommendations for our listeners. So we'll be back after these messages. From outer space, the famous TARDIS brings Time Lord, Doctor Who, and the amazing Leela, ready to do battle against their mighty enemies, the fearful Cyberman, the giant robot, and one of the deadly Daleks. Whilst Leela covers him, the Doctor reaches the TARDIS in time and disappears to escape from the Dalek. Doctor Who, Leela, the fearful inhabitants of outer space, and the TARDIS. From Dennis Fisher. Fantastic. And welcome back. 
So we've come to that point in the show where I'm going to ask my guests for their recommendations of what our listeners could uh, check out. And I'm going to go, first of all, to Eric. Okay. What have you got for us, Eric? Um, happily. So um, we've been talking about Into the Woods, but Sondheim more generally. Um, mm-hmm. And for years, I I kept waiting for someone to do a podcast that was a Sondheim podcast that was sort of song by song, show by show, through the entire catalog of Stephen Sondheim. Um, and there are sort of a variety of Sondheim shows that kind of get started and then end or or just kind of don't quite make it all the way and, or have a much more sort of, um, I don't know, less, less precise. So the last focus. eight shows and they get canceled or. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, so then about maybe about a year and a half ago now, um, uh, a friend of mine in the podcast community said, Hey, did you know this guy's starting a Sondheim podcast and he's looking for guests to come on? And it is a show called Putting It Together, hosted by Kyle Marshall. Uh, Putting It Together mm-hmm. being a song from Song in the Park with George. And where he goes song by song and show by show through the work of Stephen Sondheim. He's done, um, I've appeared now three times. Um, once talking about uh, Tonight from West Side Story. Um, mm-hmm. Once talking about um, You Gotta Get a Gimmick from Gypsy. Uh, and then most recently I was on talking about free from my funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, and he's doing essentially seasons with short breaks where each season mm-hmm. is a show and he's doing every episode is one song. So, I mean, like he has many, many more years to go, That's but a he's, lot to get through. It's a lot to get through, but he's been churning through it pretty quickly. Like he does mm-hmm. essentially, uh, you know, like I think my first appearance was definitely, I was already living not only in Prague, but in this apartment, which I've been in a, for less than a year so um yeah so in a year he's gone through west side gypsy and now he's on forum um so i would recommend anyone who's sort of already into sondheim or was intrigued by sondheim or whatever to check out putting it together hosted by kyle marshall part of the alberta podcasting network because you know canada uh well you know yeah and they're a hotbed for podcasts over there aren't they (laughs) yeah and you can uh check me out on a couple episodes but He's had a really interesting group of guests, like an Italian classic scholar who loves Sondheim, uh, people who are composers themselves, people who are actors, people who are directors, coming on and talking about why they love Sondheim or why they don't love Sondheim or whatever. It's quite interesting. So putting it together, that's my recommendation. Well, I, should, I think we'll have to put a, a link in the show notes so people yes. can uh, check that out. And uh, Amy, what would you like to recommend? Well, mine links to a podcast as well, so you might have to put another link in the show notes. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, I find that aside from my family, cat and chocolate, the thing that I love best is books. And at the moment, I find that I'm reading more non-fiction than I usually do. Hmm. And I find that recently I've got more interested in popular feminist texts. I've got um, Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist to catch up with, which I haven't read yet. But I got into this through listening to a podcast called The Guilty Feminist, um, which is hosted by a comedian called Deborah Francis Wright White, who is very funny and very intelligent um, and has on lots of very funny and very intelligent female guests. Um, so I'd recommend that. 
I've been going right the way through the backlist of the podcast. But I have to be very careful because it is quite sweary. So I have to make sure that it's not on where Tom might hear it. Mm. Our son, who's five. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's not safe for Tom, definitely. Um, but I've learned quite a few things that I didn't know. For example, I learned that apparently when all... And I don't know if you'd heard this, Eric, Eric or if it's true. <laughs> um, when all the states in America set up their own constitutions, the one that allowed women to vote was New Jersey. But that was purely because they forgot to put it in the constitution that women couldn't vote. So in I, all of the states, women <laughs> couldn't vote, but in New Jersey, they could. I wouldn't be surprised. I know yeah. the first state that actually legalized it properly, that consciously allowed women to vote, was Wyoming in about 1880-something. Mm. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I have lots learnt lots of really random things from the guilty feminist. <laughs> so that was my recommendation. That sounds like another one to check out. Mm. Excellent. Well, I haven't listened to anything anywhere near as highbrow as either of those two choices, so mine's going to sound pretty rubbish now, really. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We've had a bit of a lull in... We've been uh, going through that whole thing on Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime of of, uh, finding um, fun series and uh, and binging on them. And uh, obviously Game of Thrones is, is very current at the moment um and i do rather enjoy that so uh, i've been watching the new series of that which i won't mention any plot spoilers because obviously there's going to be a lot of people out there who uh haven't seen it yet um and the other thing we've been doing more recently is um when time allows is revisiting uh the old abc show lost which Mm. i thoroughly enjoyed when it went out um there's a lot of debate amongst fans whether the ending was particularly good or not um but i i really enjoy going back and so we're still on the first season at the moment quite early days but um it's a fantastic cast um and it's surprising how much you tend to forget after i think it was first launched in 2004 so obviously a little bit of time has passed by um You're going to remember certain plot points, but um, it's just nice going back and watching that again, especially having that little bit of uh, foreknowledge of what's going to happen later. But I've really been enjoying watching that. Okay, so um, thank you once again to my two guests, Eric and Amy. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll have to do this again another time soon. Thank you so much for having me back, Mark. It was a pleasure and wonderful talking to you again, Amy. Yes, thank you. Nice to talk to you as well.